Welcome back to the Professor Penn Podcast. David Penn here, and I'm glad to welcome you all back again. Uh, we're growing here at Free People Radio. Uh, we have a goal, and that goal is human well-being and human freedom. Uh, I want to start out with uh, a little complaint here in Minnesota. We just are coming off of uh, a, a failed weather prognostication. We listened for, I don't know, three, four days that the biggest snowstorm in history was coming, two feet in a day, and we were freaked out. The shelves were bare in the grocery stores. Everyone was prepared for a real natural disaster. And what happened? Five inches, six inches, six inches of snow. Nothing. It was a nothing burger. But interestingly, the schools were closed for two days. The businesses were closed for two days. Everybody stayed home. I presume they said they were going to work, but probably what they did was played with their phones and did nothing, did nothing, even though the roads were clear and everyone could work. And I remember when we had snowstorms in the 80s, the 90s, you have a foot of snow, went out, shoveled, and drove to work. It was fun because working was part of American culture. We believed that to be a effective and integral human being, you worked, you put your time in, you put your shoulder to the mainmast. And that was if you owned a company or you worked for someone that owned a company. Working was the value of the society. And I thought it was very emblematic of the problems we find ourselves in today, that we had a fake snowstorm, and we had two days off, and all of the lost output, and all of the lost revenue, and just the general degradation of our capability, and the children who are already grotesquely behind because of the COVID lockdowns, got two more days off doing nothing, and if we're going to uh, pay our bills here as the American people, if we're going to pay our debts as the country, the United States of America, we're going to have to identify that we're no longer working. And our primary antagonist, China, those people are working. They view us as lazy, and we are. They view us as overpaid, and we are. They want all of our money, and they're going to take it because we're not working and we're not defending our fort. So if we want to maintain our freedom and maintain our options and maintain our well-being, we're going to have to look at this as a society and recognize that this whole four-day work thing that's coming, that's just all part of destroying America or at least the America where there's human freedom and human well-being. This thing is, is really gone too far, in my opinion, and I wanted to share that with you to start uh, this podcast because it was just shocking to me. I was just blown away by the fact that we just shut down for two days over a little bit of snow. Ridiculous. I also want to say that uh, a, um, a friend of mine, someone I work with very carefully, a man named Steve Stern, who is very involved in the precinct strategy, uh, went on a very prominent uh, 
uh, podcast, uh, Steve Bannon's War Room, and uh, he mentioned my name and my activities up here in Minnesota. And this has happened many times. I've appeared uh, on War Room and many other uh, television and podcast shows regularly. And when I do it and I encourage people to call, uh, you know, I get one or two calls or an email. Something's changing because I was deluged with calls and emails yesterday in ref- you know, as you know, after Steve's appearance. Um, people representing over 200 individuals contacted me and wanted to get involved in what we're doing politically up here in Minnesota. And remember, this is a politically uh, uh, focused and a political uh, action podcast where I'm actually a member of the political uh, parties here in Minnesota. And I, I try not to say, I mean, I am in the Republican Party as an officer, but I try not to say Republican or Democrat, because be you Republican or Democrat, if you're not involved in the actual political process, then you really are not in the game. You're not in the room. You're not in the deal. And what I'm trying to uh, motivate you as the listener and the viewer to do is to get involved with your local party. Both of these parties have produced together. They've done it together because we have to look at the facts. What have they done together? They've created $32 trillion in debt, which means we're going to go broke and lose our currency status as the world's reserve currency, which means life's going to get very hard here very quickly. We're on the verge of nuclear war. And let's just stick with those two for now, because I could go on and on what these two parties, you know, the crime all over, the general hatred we have for one another, how they've weaponized one group of people against another group of people, broken down our ability to talk to each other, broken down our ability to love each other, destroyed our American community. I could go off on a rant that would last the entire podcast of what these two parties have produced. So be you a Democrat or a Republican, a liberal or conservative, please get involved in the party of your choice and participate because it's we the people through our participation in the political process. It's This is the only way, in my humble opinion, that we have a chance to arrest the degradation of our country. So I wanted to start out with those two issues, and I want to just give a preface today. The, the subject of today's podcast is the interconnectedness of all things. And before we get into that, because the interconnectedness is not exactly happy, I thought we'd start out with a beautiful musical interlude to lift our spirits. Zane, if you'd please.
Zane, that is the incomparable Daryl Hall and CeeLo Green, and you want to talk about some good music. Wow, and I, I like to bring this music up because um, I love music. I'm classically trained as a musician. I played rock and roll for years. Uh, my only regret about being involved in the political is it's eliminated a lot of my time to play music, and that is painful. So I'm Expressing myself, just enjoying this. And wow, Daryl Hall, the best. If you don't know him because he's from a different generation, please check him out. And this song, I Can't Go For That, is really kind of an anthem. You know, I'll do anything, but I'm not going to go for that. And the, the idea is what is the boundary that I will accept as an American citizen before I get off the couch and get involved in the political process. And the entire point of the Professor Penn podcast is to say, from my opinion, in my opinion, we have gone over the line, over the line. And it will be we the people in participation in community that is going to limit the ambition of this failed leadership, and it is completely failed leadership. I don't care why they failed. If you want to have a conspiracy theory, great. If you want to say they're stupid, great. But they reflect who we are because we elect these people, and they're clowns, complete clowns or complete criminals. You make the decision yourself. Some of them are clowns and some of them are criminals. Maybe we'll sort it out one by one as we go through these podcasts to come. But I can't go for that. I can't go for a business model, which is the business model of this country that is based on slavery, wage slavery, drugs coming across our borders. Unbelievable how much drugs, illegal, coming up, killing people like crazy. And then the legal drugs, which is also killing people. You know... (laughs) That's really kind of anti-well-being, this whole drug thing. And piracy, just taking people's things away from them. I mean, it's just, we got to get to the root cause of why life is not well. And we're going to continue to get into this today with the interconnectedness of how unwell things are and what is the cause of this unwellness, because there is a cause. So there was a cause 1.0, and now we're into a cause 2.0. And it's the same people coming from the same place, doing the same thing, but they're much more sophisticated 
in the 2.0 version than they were in the 1.0 version. So we're going to take a look at the 1.0 version today and see where this business model came from and look a little bit at its effects, kind of go through it. But before we get there, we got to stay up on this Ukraine thing because my life is threatened. My life is threatened. And I have to share with you, your life is threatened. So please help me spread the word. If you like this podcast, you like the content, please click the like button and send it out to as many of your friends as you can with your endorsement because we need to spread this word. Royce White is broadcasting here on Free People Radio. He has a beautiful podcast going called Please Call Me Crazy. Please check that out. Royce is an incomparable political theorist, and for his age, it's genius. And we all know Royce, and we respect Royce, and spread his podcasts out. Let's get the engagement for this channel up into the millions as quickly as we can because we're out of time. These people are out of control. So let us go through some of the news on the Ukraine. First, we want to hear what President Biden just recently had to say in an interview about nuclear war and the Ukraine. And as you know, just hours before, Vladimir Putin gave his own speech. And I wanted to ask you about something Vladimir Putin said. He said that Russia is suspending participation, cooperation in the nuclear treaty with the United States. What's your message to Putin on that? It's a big mistake to do that. Not very responsible. And, uh, but I don't read into that that he's thinking of using nuclear weapons or anything like that. I think it's a, I'm not sure what else he was able to say in his speech at the moment. But I think it's a mistake and uh, I'm confident we'll be able to work it out. He is saying he's going to suspend participation in this nuclear treaty. Rhetoric is one thing, but we're a year into this war now. Does it concern you when he says something like this? And are we less safe? Well, look, I think we're less safe when we walk away from arms control agreements that are very much in both parties' interest and the world's interest. But I've not seen anything, we've not seen anything that where there's a change in his posture, what they're doing, the idea that somehow this means they're thinking of new, using nuclear weapons, international continental ballistic missiles. There's no evidence of that. Okay, you know, when people get to the point where they're just lying wholesale, I mean, this is such a lie. This is the President of the United States, and I'm going to show you why he's lying. I'm not just going to make a statement that he's lying. We're actually going to go through some bits which show us that our President, when he's talking, he's lying. I'm going to say this again. When he's speaking, He's lying. And when a regime reaches the end of its legitimacy, the lies replace the truth. Black is white. War is peace. You know, love is hate. Everything goes completely goofy. You know, men are women and women are men, and we don't even know where we are anymore because the disinformation is so extreme. But all we have to do is look around on the Internet and we'll find the truth because it's out there. What we're doing, as we uh, talked about in the previous podcast, which was Ukraine Made Simple, what we're doing is we are involved in a proxy war on Russia's border. Obviously, a nuclear-armed superpower. We are 
violating their internal version of our Monroe Doctrine, we are threatening the survival of the Russian Federation. And in fact, we have many of our political leaders calling for the death of Vladimir Putin, for him to be deposed. I mean, this kind of rhetoric is so hyper-inflammatory. And while we're talking, we're actually arming the Ukrainians, and they are engaged in a brutal, bloody battle. And I will have to say, it's my humble opinion, that there are many American contractors there, mercenaries there, and probably active duty U.S. military. We know that the U.S. military is providing targeting information. Obviously, hundreds of billions of dollars of weapons and materiel have been put into the Ukraine by the United States and NATO. I mean, this is crazy. We're in cuckoo land now, and it's only when we stand up as the American people and say, I can't go for that. That's why I played that song. I can do almost anything, but I can't go for nuclear war. Stop it. Stop it right now. American people, just everybody open their windows and start screaming, stop it. Spread this podcast out so we can motivate the American people. We are starting to wake up. 200 people, people representing 200 people called me in one day. This is new. People are starting to realize that their lives and the lives of their children are threatened and that if we don't stand up and put pressure on our leaders by writing letters, going to town halls, being involved in our political parties, because our political parties are asleep too, we got to get people woke up. And here's why. Zane, could you play? This is uh, Lavrov. He's a, I think he's the um, foreign minister or like the secretary of state. I don't remember his exact title, but he's like the number two guy in the Russian government. And uh, this is him warning us of Russia's willingness to engage in nuclear war. Please go ahead, Zane. Всем понятно, что Третья мировая может быть только Но, обращаю ваше внимание, что это в голове западных политиков постоянно вертится ядерная война, а не в голове россиян. Поэтому я вас уверяю, что мы не позволим каким-то провокациям the provocations of the West to force them out of balance. They're not going to lose their balance. But if a real war starts against the Russians, a real war, those that carry out such, such plans must think. In other words, he's saying, we are not going to lose our balance and be goaded into nuclear war but if there is a war that aims at destroying the Russian Federation, they're going to use nuclear weapons. He's saying it right there. And he's, he's articulating the official policy of the Russian government, which, of course, President Biden says is not their official policy. So let's go on to former president of the Russian Federation, Dmitry Medvedev who is now also going to warn the West that there will be a nuclear war if Russia is defeated in the Ukraine. Let's listen to this one. An outspoken former Russian president who is close to Vladimir Putin, Dmitry Medvedev, has warned NATO that Moscow's defeat in Ukraine could trigger a nuclear war. He said, and I quote, 
The defeat of a nuclear power in a conventional war may trigger a nuclear war. He also said that the military alliance and other Western defence leaders due to meet at Ramstein Air Base in Germany on Friday to discuss support for Ukraine should consider the risks of their policy. The Kremlin was quick to endorse Medvedev's remarks, saying that they were in full accordance with Moscow's principles. That's good. Just Thank you. So that's uh, another counter to President Biden's assertion that the Russians are not considering war, nuclear war. And of course, this was in the context of President Putin suspending the SALT arms agreement. Maybe it was the START arms agreement. Anyways, it was a nuclear arms control agreement that's been in effect for many years. And he suspended it. He didn't withdraw from it because he's putting the bread on the table that let's sit down and work this out. He's seeking negotiations. Now, of course, our Western liberal media is saying something completely different. And I don't even care what they have to say. Because when you listen to the analysis on MSNBC and CNN and these very uh, uh, state-sponsored organizations, they're going to give you a very curated version of the truth. I'm not even going to go through their BS. Because what Putin is doing is he's trying to reach out to have dialogue so that we can find a solution to this problem. And interestingly, the only person in our entire infrastructure of leadership is ex-president Donald Trump, who is continuously calling for an end to this war. Everyone else is all in on this war. The United States is all our leadership, not the American people, which in polling seem to be about 75 to 80% against this war. I mean, who cares about the people? You know why nobody cares about us? We're not in the room. We're not in the deal. We need to get into our political parties and enforce our will upon every level of our parties, from the very local committees to the county committees to the con congressional district committees to the state committees, we have to let these people know throughout the whole infrastructure of politics that we don't want to die in a nuclear war. That's not a very well-being outcome. And unless we stand these people up and pressure them, they're going to get us all killed because this is a confrontation within which the United States government has gone all in. And why have they gone all in? Well, we've always had the uh, dollar, U.S. dollar hegemony since the end of World War II. Uh, Kissinger cemented that with the petrodollar arrangement. Uh, commodities, particularly oil, are traded in dollars. And as we've continued to print dollars here, because we have a little problem, our outgo exceeds our income. And these leaders continue to deficit spend. They spend money we don't have. So we either borrow the money by selling U.S. Treasury bonds, and when we fall short of that, they just create money out of thin air. It's called counterfeiting. And what that does is it expands the money supply, and that creates inflation. So the dollar is progressively getting to be less valuable. And 
We're confiscating people's money. Let me just go into how this has worked so against the interests of the United States because the people that are running the show are stupid. These are stupid people or they're corrupt people. I'm going to leave it to you to figure it out. They're either very stupid or very dangerous, and there's some of each. So when the Russians invaded the Ukraine, the United States placed powerful, what we thought was powerful, economic sanctions upon the Russian Federation. And actually, the ruble went to almost zero like that. And it went down, and it bounced up like a Super Bowl because the Russians have something very, very valuable, natural resources, like $100 trillion of natural resources. And they're allied with the Chinese, and they're allied with the Iranians. That's called the Iron Triangle. Russia, China, Iran. And why is it the Iron Triangle? Because it is conceived to be an alliance that can never be broken. It's iron. So when the Russians invaded the Ukraine, which we've talked about the truth of the Ukraine, it's my opinion at the Professor Penn podcast that Western manipulation of the Ukraine led to the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And these sanctions were put on, these economic sanctions were put on, and they failed. They failed to hurt the Russian Federation. And our government, in its great wisdom or corruption, as the case may be, confiscated some $300 billion of Russian Federation assets held here in the United States in dollars. They took their shit away. That would be called piracy. When you steal somebody's goods, it's piracy. The business model, piracy. So when they took that money away, which is dollar-denominated assets owned by the Russian Federation here in the United States, the United States government took it away. Everybody said, wait a sec, wait, 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 wait. Why are we working in dollars when the U.S. government, instead of honoring its role as the world reserve currency with a very transparent and predictable legal system where people's goods and assets are not stolen through piracy, why are we dealing with these people? They're stealing our shit. Okay, when you take people's things away from them, they will find an alternative. And we've actually driven Russia and China and Iran through these types of sanctions to develop their own financial infrastructure and to develop an alternative to the U.S. dollar. And they're actively seeking to depose the dollar as the world reserve currency. Saudi Arabia, for example, has announced publicly, oh, interestingly, at the last World Economic Forum meeting, that they will now accept Chinese yuan, RMB, their currency, in payment for Saudi oil. We're unraveling here now. The post-World War II democratic liberal order is unraveling. So that dollar was always backed up by the U.S. military. Always. There was always this implicit, hey, if you don't play ball, we'll kill you. 
pirates, you don't always have that kind of background. If you don't do what we, if you don't give us your goods, we're going to board your ship and kill all of you. Sometimes it just boarded and killed everybody anyhow. So we threatened, it didn't work, and now they've gone all in on this military adventure to back up the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. And nobody's backing down. And let me tell you how deep it goes. This is cultural warfare at the level of faith. This is far beyond politics. Zane, can you play this next little piece by the Bishop Krill? This is really an interesting one. Watch this for a thrill. This is Bishop Krill officiating over a religious. He's saying that uh, many dangerous forms are attacking Russia today, and he hopes that God will enlighten these evil people and help them understand that they will not be allowed to destroy Russia. And if any attempt is made to destroy Russia, Russia is going to have to destroy the world. Look at this. This is a Russian Orthodox Church leader that Russia is a very great country. The crazy people want to destroy the great Russian state. That Russia has powerful weapons and Russians are very strong. That Russians are motivated to win. They can't be defeated. And they will defeat any enemy. They're going to come out victorious. That, they, that people, that the Westerners want to remold Russia and impose Western values upon them. And he's saying this dressed up in his clerical garb. Thank you very much, Zane. So, for those of you who are just listening, and for the viewers, I want to interpret this in my opinion. This is not a small thing. When we think of the Soviet Union, we think of Marxism, godless communism, and that was how it was fenced to me as a younger person that we, America, the land of capitalism, the land of faith in God, were uh, fighting against communism and faithlessness, and it was a clash of civilizations. Well, as I've said previously, when we talked about the yin-yang symbol, one thing will turn into its opposite. That's just the way the world works. If you live long enough, you start to see it happen. You have to be a student of energy to actually watch these things occur. And what we're watching occur is that our country, the United States of America, as we covered in the previous podcast, is becoming extraordinarily faithless, driven by Lyndon Baines Johnson's passage of the 501c3 status for churches, synagogues, and mosques, which makes our religious leaders beholden to the statist government instead of beholden to God. Where in Russia, where they've eliminated the 
previous communist regime, the deep Russian Orthodox Church has reemerged in leadership of the Russian people. And this is their leader, Bishop Krill, warning us that the Russian people will not be defeated. They're a strong people, that they're a religious people. They don't want the Western values, the non-sectarian values that we discussed very recently. They don't want those values. They don't want the values that are being propagated here in my beloved United States of America. As a matter of fact, if you don't want these new values, these non-sectarian values, be you Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative, if you want to have a continuation of 5,700 years of human history not to be overthrown in 20 or 30 or 40 years, and remember, I've been saying, we're in a consciousness experiment, an experiment of human thought, an experiment of human emotions. So we have a 5,700-year organic evolution of human consciousness because the business model of the crown usurped that tradition. We had a huge protest movement that's lasted several hundred years, and we're in in the process of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well, they went through that in the Soviet Union. They threw the baby out with the bathwater. And they said, wait, 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 stop. This is not well-being. It's not well-being to have a faithless, non-sectarian, Marxist society. That's not human well-being. They're past that. They've worked their way through it. Now they have a religious infrastructure which is very critically involved in the governance and the the management of the people in the country because they're coming at it from the well-being perspective which includes a spiritual life. And here's the leader of the spiritual life saying, don't step on my my blue suede shoes. Don't threaten the survival of the Russian people. They're a strong people. And if you threaten us, we're going to use nuclear weapons and destroy the world. I want to say, I am not a Putin apologist. I'm not a Russian supporter. I'm an American citizen. I believe in the United States of America, in our Constitution, in our 5,700-year tradition, because we are the New Jerusalem, or at least we used to think of ourselves that way. Before Horace Mann introduced the progressive education system and erased our religious upbringing. Okay, fine. We can reclaim it, just like they've reclaimed it in Russia, And that's part of what we're doing here on the Professor Penn Podcast. I want to be very unabashed about this. I am a believer. So all of my sharing with you is based on the fact that I have an experience of of knowing the spiritual world, and I think that world is very important for my well-being, and my faith informs my well-being, and I'm well. And in a previous podcast, we talked about death and well-being. For those of you who say, oh, death. That must mean it's all BS. No, 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 no. People can be well unto the moment of their death. So let us start to understand human well-being, and let us understand that the most anti-well-being thing that we can do as the American people is allow our leaders to continue this insanity in the Ukraine and get us all killed. And again, some of you are going to say, these people are stupid. And some of you are going to say, 
This is the New World Order destroying the world as per part of their plan. Let us not get into that argument today. Let us get into the argument of what are we going to do about it? So I have a little bit here that I want to play. Very hard to find this. This is cell phone stuff. Of a recent town hall that was held in New York City with Hakeem Jeffries, who is the highest-ranking Democrat in the House of Representatives. He replaced Nancy Pelosi as the Democrat leader. So let us watch this because it is quite informative. And I'm going to say before we start, every single American needs to learn from this and get involved like this young patriot, be he Democrat or Republican, this man is a hero in my eyes. Please, Zane, let's watch him. And he testified in support of Seymour Hersh's article on the United States bombing Nord Stream pipeline. If it is proven that the United States bombed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, as has been asserted by Seymour Hersh and his article, will you call for the United States to acknowledge and admit that that was an act of war against Germany and Russia. And I'm asking this because this may be the only way to prevent the rest of us from being killed in a thermonuclear war. And I don't want to be fried. Don't you think the media should be reporting on whether or not this is true? And don't you think you should be inquiring into whether or not this is true? Well, thank you for the question. Uh, one, I've got no information to suggest uh, that the United States was involved in bombing the Nord Stream pipeline. Stop just for a second. I just, one thing I want to comment on. I don't want to see my elected representatives sitting in chairs that look like thrones. That is personally offensive to me. And perhaps if you look at that throne, maybe it offends you also. Please continue. You would have, you would have been, you weren't briefed on it. Sir, sir, you got your chance to ask a question. You weren't given information because he explicitly says you weren't briefed on it. Shouldn't you inquire? So here's what I'll say about, I think, you know, President Biden's leadership generally as it relates to the Ukraine and Russia. We committed an act of war. What are you doing to respond to that? We have to hold Biden accountable. So listen, you're from Brooklyn, right? You know when to call bullshit when you sure. see it. So do I. This is bullshit right now. And I see what's Thank happening you. right now. That does not silence me. So, you can hear me right I now. I want you to say something about the bombing because we're all going to die from a nuclear war right now unless you stop it and you at least put an inquire into whether or not it's true. This war in Ukraine is going to leave us all dead. So what are you going to do? Because you need to inquire. Here's I'm a New Yorker too. Here's what I'll say. Say it. We're going to continue to stand with the Ukrainian people. That's fucking bullshit. Do not do that. You will end us all it dead. It is war against We Vladimir need Putin. peace. We need talks. Because Why are you sabotaging just, talks? Do not put your hands on me. We need Ukraine peace talks. I am Russia. not going to take this. It's a we need peace now. talks. Between, it's a you are leaving. Listen. Democracy Did you even read the allegations? It's a no. battle between how about, truth how about accountability? and propaganda. And it's a battle between okay. tyranny and freedom. And democracy, okay. truth, and freedom will prevail. Cremation. And the United States is going to help make sure that happens. Not destruction. Thank you. And look at that obsequious smile on the senior Democrat leader in the House. Look at that face. That man 
is a hero, that young man. That man is a hero. You know, I'm not trying to make myself heroic uh, doing a podcast, but please send this out to thousands of people. Ask these people to subscribe to the channel. We're going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to die. My five kids are going to die. And this obsequious man who has the name Hakeem, which harkens back to Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, we would think this man is a great leader of the people with a name like Hakeem because I'm stupid. That's just a name. His name could be Jeff Jeffries or Rob Jeffries. He's not a Hakeem Jeffries in the sense of being a protester or a, 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 a critic of the status quo. This man is a former corporate lawyer in New York who has risen to the top of the Democrat Party. He is shilling for the military-industrial complex, and he's saying that President Biden's leadership has been fantastic. We need to support the Ukrainian people. Really? What happened to the liberals in the Democrat Party that were in the streets in the 1960s? Hundreds of thousands, millions of people in the streets protesting the Vietnam War. That war was brought to an end by we the people. Go look it up on YouTube. There is thousands and thousands of videos of millions of American citizens in the streets every weekend protesting for peace. The American people forced, forced Lyndon Baines Johnson to resign and not seek a second term. They elected Richard Nixon because he ran on I'll end the Vietnam War platform. When he didn't do it, the people intensified their protests. Millions of people every weekend. The universities were beset, beset by protest. My father was a leader of the Vietnam War protest movement here at the University of Minnesota. I have pictures of him chained to a fence. They had a they had to they had to cut that chain to take him to jail. He was pepper gassed in his office. He was beaten by the FBI. These people really worked in a very consistent method and way to end that war. Is there any protest here? This is the first time I've seen something. This is very current. 200 people, the representatives of 200 people coming to me on one television appearance. First time that's happened. Maybe we're waking up. But I'm going to tell you it's too late. So if you want to catch up, send the podcast out to thousands of people. Let's get this community going. Let's get protests started right now. This young man is the model. He is the template for every young person in this country. And, of course, because he's African-American, let that be a lesson to all of us. What the future of this country depends on is the embrace and the connectivity, the interconnectedness of all things the love that we have one for the other. But the, the, the African-American community is motivated in protest, has never had a chance to live the good life here in this country. So this kid, this hero, stood up and spoke out and probably was taken to jail, probably was taken to jail. So I cannot tell you how much love I have of this young man, and he's my hero, and I'm going to go when I get the chance— 
course, when they have these town halls in Minnesota, having experienced it, police are there. You get to write your question on an index card. You don't get to speak. You give them the index card, and then our leaders basically have an opportunity to advertise their insanity. It's an opportunity that it's just a scam the way we're doing it here in Minnesota. Our leaders here in Minnesota are weak and unwilling to talk to the people. Well, if I'm ever a leader, and I'm going to tell you I don't seek leadership, but if I was thrust into it by the natural evolution of things, by the interconnectedness of all things, I'll guarantee you I'll sit in a room once a month from 8 till 5, and anybody that wants to come talk to me can come sit down right next to me, and I don't care if they believe what I believe or they don't believe what I believe. I want to know their name. I want to know their children's names. I want to know their parents' names. I want to get to know them because I want an American community. It doesn't matter to me if people don't agree with me. I don't want them to agree with me. I want them to be their own creative individuals, not thralls in a collective, not thralls in a communist collective, but individuals in a republic. You know, freedom is very messy. It's a lot of conflict. That's why our leadership wants to get rid of it, because it'll be much easier to hurt us along if everybody's high on drugs or on materialism or depending on the government for safety so that everybody sits in their little box, their little coffin apartments, and does not protest. And if we don't get up now, that's where our children are going to find themselves. Oh, hey, we might find ourselves there. Not cool. That's why we're doing this podcast. That's why Free People of America exists. That's why Free People Radio exists. That's why Royce White is busting his ass every day. That's why we have thousands of leaders that are emerging out there. And whosever voice you hear and you like, please participate. I know my voice reaches some of you. I know I have rather a highbrow approach to this or a intellectual approach. Well, hell, I'm educated. You know, I swear so that I can not seem so educated. But, you know, the point is, I'm going to be who I am. And if you like what I'm doing, spread it out. If you like what Royce is doing, spread it out. There's, if you like Tim Pool, spread it out. Let's get all these people who are fighting this evil, this nuclear sword of Damocles, now suspended inches from our neck, Let's get these people out of power. All right. Now, believe it or not, that was just an introduction. <laughs> I want to get into the actual event today, which is the interconnectedness of all things, because we're going to get into where this business model comes from, which leads us to this calamity we're facing today. So <clears throat> if you could play this next bit uh, of 1960s China, please. The great Supreme Commander, Chairman Mao, issued a world-shaking call to us. You should pay attention to state affairs and carry the great proletarian cultural revolution through to the end. With the Red Guards, revolutionary young people as pathbreakers, the workers, peasants and soldiers are marching forward courageously. The red torrents of the great proletarian cultural revolution are sweeping the country and shaking the whole world. Chairman Mao says, Marxism consists of thousands of truths, 
but they all boil down to one phrase, it's right to rebel. The proletarian revolutionary rebels hold high the great red banner of Moldedom's thought. Through big character posters and great debates, they argue things out, expose, criticize, and repudiate thoroughly, and launch fierce attacks on all kinds of representatives of the bourgeoisie, sweeping away all such monsters. The heroic young Red Guard fighters go out on the streets. That is, the old ideas, old culture, old customs and old habits left over by the old society which spread feudal poison and symbolized imperialist aggression and capitalist exploitation. They are destroying old shop signs and replacing them with revolutionary ones. Common dregs, such as street names insulting the Chinese people left by imperialism and revisionism, must be completely destroyed. Let Maldedong's thought occupy all positions. They are putting up quotations from Chairman Maldedong. The Chinese people will go all out to establish the new ideas, new culture, new customs and new habits of the proletariat. The great proletarian cultural revolution has pushed the mass movement of creative study and application of Chairman Mao's works to a new stage. In our great motherland, a new era is emerging in which workers, peasants and soldiers are grasping Marxism-Leninism, molded on thought. The great proletarian cultural revolution has promoted the revolutionization of people's thinking. Okay, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to settle down now. I got all excited. My voice got all excited. I got choked up. Something about thermonuclear war chokes my ass up. Dying in a thermonuclear war, living through it and living in a post-apocalyptic environment chokes me up. Chokes me up to the point where my voice doesn't work. And I hope it chokes you up too. Because dying in that fashion is disgusting. There's no time to pray there's no time to reconcile yourself. You just wake up one morning and boom, you're ash. This is very cruel. So I've been to China really a lot. I've spent a lot of my adult life uh, involved with uh, Chinese culture and Chinese people. And uh, I was trained in, uh, I was actually trained in, uh, I was trained by a very famous uh, Chinese military man named Wang Gi and his students. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the passing of the, the Chinese martial tradition uh, into the West is, is really pretty famous. You know, Bruce Lee, everybody knows Bruce Lee. And there's an urban legend that he was uh, almost killed because he had decided to teach, you know, the ancient Chinese secret to uh, the Guaylo the ghosts, the white people, the Chinese didn't like that. See, they had a secret society, and they wanted to keep that well-being information to themselves because they hoped the ghosts died. And why did they hope the ghosts died? Because the ghost people, that would be the British Empire, pursued a hundreds and hundreds of years of exploitation when the British was a colonial empire. That is business model 1.0, slavery, drugs, piracy. This was what the British Empire developed for hundreds of years, plundered the earth, 
enslave the people. Plundering is piracy, right? Slavery. Oh, and they were big into the drug business, as we're going to see as we go through the rest of this of this uh, podcast. But you know, when you when you piss on people long enough, when you rob people long enough, when you just outright kill them, when you ba- you know you can back a little squirrel into a corner, and that little squirrel will bite your hand off to survive. And we are human beings, so the Western powers led by the British, beat up on the Chinese for so many hundreds of years that finally they rebelled. And Chairman Mao said, you got a right to rebel, kind of like the United States of America, as we're going to show there's an interconnectedness of the thinking that led the Chinese people to rebel in a communist direction and led the American people to rebel in this capitalist direction. These are the yin-yang. This is the the two paths of throwing off the colonial yoke that was put upon the world by the British Empire. But they're not gone. We've just gone to 2.0, and that's what we're going to be talking about in podcasts to come. Right now, we're just going to talk about the interconnectedness of British Empire 1.0. And here we have the Chinese, millions of people in the streets. It was a people's revolution. They threw out the old ways, which what they were saying when they threw out the old culture, they're talking about the feudalistic, they even said it was the feudalistic culture. <clears throat> you know, the, the, the feudalistic idea that holds one race superior and another inferior, as Bob Marley sang so eloquently. So the Chinese revolted against um, empire, they revolted against feudalism. They revolted against a organization of consciousness within which the vast majority of the people lived miserable, unhealthy lives. And a small group of people at the top of the pyramid, take a look on your U.S. dollar. You see that See that pyramid on there? Pyramid power? Hey, if you're at the base of the pyramid, life's not too good. But if you're at that peak, oh, Let me tell you what that is. Money flows uphill and shit flows downhill. And that's the business model of the empire. So it's right on the dollar bill. Why is that? You know, I have to ask myself, if that's the business model, that money flows uphill and shit flows downhill, why is that pyramid on the dollar bill? What kind of symbol is that? Who's zooming who on this deal? When the Chinese said in 1949, we had enough, We're getting rid of all this. No more feudalism. No more empire. No more colonialism. We're going to have a new experiment. And we watch that, and I think it's just fantastic, having been to China dozens and dozens of times and having devoted my life to the study of Chinese philosophy, um, I have the highest level of respect uh, for the Chinese people and for Chinese culture. So... Loving Chinese philosophy and and having gone there, I thought, oh, wow, China's a Shaolin temple. (laughs) No. When the Mao took over, much like our progressives here, he not only threw off feudalism and threw off empire, but he deep-sixed all spirituality that was a deep tradition in China, and he cut the Chinese people off from their spiritual roots, 
because he wanted to have an all-powerful state. Sound familiar? Like the United States of America is today. Because as the yin-yang symbol tells us, one thing turns into its opposite. In fact, that reminds me, a friend of mine in China just sent me an email this week where he was updating me on some business developments there, and he said, in China, anything is possible. Really? Yep. He was telling me that friends of mine were soon to be billionaires. Well, not friends, but associates, ex-associates, because I divorced myself from the Chinese business model many years ago because I love America, which is another conversation about the alternative economy, which is always running through this podcast. And I'm going to take a break. Whenever you can, support a small business. Support a mom and pop. Try to stay out of the big box stores. I'm not naming names, but they don't love us. Much like the medical industrial complex, they see you and me as inventory to exploit. But when you go to a small business where you can meet the owner, the man or the woman that runs the business, just like I said, they're going to want to know your name. They're going to want to know who your children are. They're going to want to know your story and their survival. That is the last line of defense in this country. And faith, those two things, entrepreneurship and faith, that's the last line of defense before we are completely dominated by tyranny. So please spend your money wisely. You spend your money every day. That's like voting. So if you can go to a company that is, you know, lovers of America, please spend your money there. Back to China. Well, it's very free there, actually, uh, relative to the United States, because the Communist Party of China has a deal with the people. And here's the deal. We're going to let you people make all the money you can make. And if, you let, if we set up an environment where you are free to pursue your well-being and your freedom to make money, leave us alone. And that's what's going on there. As long as the Chinese people can make money, they're going to let the Chinese CCP do whatever it wants to do. Conversation for another day. It's a mess there because the CCP is a tyrannical, world-conquering empire regime, and the Chinese people are supporting it. And the U.S. government, well, hey, what are we doing in the Ukraine? And we're supporting it. So we got governments all over the world that are run by either criminals or cuckoos. You pick them. And they're able to do this because we, the billions of people on this planet, we're pursuing our daily lives, getting married, having kids, going to ball games, going bowling, having good meals, and we just want to be left alone. And I think that's great. We want to have the kind of governance that allows us to pursue our lives. But what, what have we learned? We're out of balance. We've pursued our own selfish lives to the extent that we've created a gap that allow, has allowed these crazies or these cuckoos to get in here and pursue policies that are anti-human. Well, we still have a republic. So if we get involved in politics, we can sweep these people up and out, and we can have a new culture, a new vision of politics that are, number one, completely honest and transparent. No more backstabbing, no more manipulating. Honest, transparent, and nonviolent. And when we pursue that as the American people, 
We can solve these problems overnight, but it requires us to get involved. I'm involved, and I want to be an example to all the people I touch. And many people say that I am an example to them. I'm not proud of it. You be an example. Send the podcast out. Be involved. Okay. So let's talk about what happened. Another revolution, because this Chinese revolution, you know, we're going to see how deeply Britain was involved in exploiting the Chinese people. Hey, guess another group that they were exploiting. That'd be us, the American people. Let's take a look at this next bit. Revolutions rarely happen overnight, and the American Revolution was no exception. It was a slow burn of frustration and anger that built up month after month, year after year. One of the crucial moments in the saga was the Tea Party, brought on by the passage of the Tea Act in 1773. Here are five important points to fully understand the scope of the Tea Act and why it was so important to the birth of our nation. In the 1770s, one of the most valuable commodities in the Western world was tea. Tea was new, it was exotic, exactly the kind of thing that's easy to sell. But maybe not that easy. Because by 1773, decreased sales left the British East India Company with a surplus of over 17 million pounds of tea just sitting and rotting in warehouses in England. The country's biggest and most important company was in serious trouble. The British East India Company needed a bailout, and they looked to the North American colonies for a solution. Normally, British tea merchants sold tea to American traders in London at a markup, who would then sell the tea to colonists. The British government thought, why are we using American merchants to sell our tea when we can just ship it there ourselves? So they cut out the middleman by passing the Tea Act of 1773, which allowed the British East India Company to ship and sell their tea directly to the colonies at a lower cost. The idea being that a British monopoly on tea sales in America would ease the company's financial burden. Now, it's important to understand that the Tea Act was part of a larger effort by the British Crown to squeeze as much money from the colonies as possible. The Brits were heavily in debt from the French and Indian War, and the colonies became their own private ATM of sorts. A few years earlier, Parliament passed the Townsend Acts, which taxed items that colonists relied on lead, glass, paper, paint, and of course, tea. The backlash was so severe that the British repealed all the Townsend Acts, except for one, the tea tax. Colonial tea merchants were furious. Not only had the Tea Act taken away their source of income, but they would still be taxed through the roof to buy their own tea. Colonists had to take matters into their own hands. December 16, 1773. Americans fought back by boycotting British tea entirely, allowing imports to sit on the docks and spoil. Colonial Governor Thomas Hutchinson ordered that American colonists buy the tea, but they had other plans. That night, a group of about 60 Bostonians called the Sons of Liberty, wearing Mohawk headdresses and war paint, boarded three British East India Company trading ships and dumped 342 chests of tea into the Boston Harbor. The Boston Tea Party was celebrated across the colonies as a symbol of defiance against the tyrannical British rule. The British doubled down in response, passing what became known as the Intolerable Acts, a series of laws designed to punish colonial America for their resistance. They closed Boston Harbor, imposed martial law in Massachusetts, and allowed British troops to shack up in colonists' homes whenever it was necessary. For the colonists, the Intolerable Acts would be the straw that broke the camel's back. While the Tea Act was not extremely potent on its own, 
it was part of a series of events that snowballed towards the revolution in the 13 colonies. The phrase, no taxation without representation, wasn't just a slogan. It was the result of years of unfair treatment by the British Crown. The Tea Act serving as a prime example. Oh, the interconnectedness of all things. And where do you think that tea came from? Oh, it came from China, where the British Empire was involved in extracting wealth from the Chinese and extracting wealth from the Americans at the same time. Oh, my gosh. So that revolution of Mao and that revolution of 1776 was a revolution against the same shitty business model of slavery, drugs, and piracy. And, oh, those British people, they were very, very, very bad. And now they've just taken it up to 2.0, which we're going to talk about. You know, I talked about that European intellectual tradition. Hey, who was behind this stuff? I mean, come on. So now we're getting down to who the bad guys are because we're the good guys. We're the guys that believe in human well-being and human dignity and human freedom. So let us not get down on the Chairman Mao too much because he was just thrown off the shackles in his own way, just like our American uh, uh, forebears threw off the shackles of the crown Declaration of Independence, right? We all know that. And they talked about no taxation without representation. There's something about being enslaved through taxation, like we're experiencing here today. Whoa, that tax rate is high. Really, really high. Like you got to work almost all year just to pay your taxes. Strange, isn't it? How these things keep recycling through history because we don't wake up and we don't take responsibility for our own self-governance, and we don't self-govern, hey, we're giving our freedom away. Like it? Well, don't watch the podcast. If you don't like giving your freedom away, let's form a community. Let's get together. Let's actually meet. Let's organize and form a new American experience that is based on human well-being. This old business model, look at this. China and the United States being manipulated by the same business model simultaneously. That tea that went in that harbor came from China. I just want to say just for a second, no taxation without representation has been overhyped. If you go back and read the Declaration of Independence, the colonists were declaring their independence because they wanted trial by jury. They didn't just want to be imprisoned on the whim of some British military officer. They, the Crown had stopped immigration and naturalization in the colonies because they sought to control the colonies. They wanted to open up the uh, immigration. It was a big country. We only were on the eastern seaboard. They wanted more and more people coming over from Europe that were rejecting that British Empire business model. The Crown, in its classic skill of turning one group against the other, had bought off a lot of the Native American tribes. The Native American tribes were on the Crown's payroll, and they were harassing and killing colonists because the Crown was exacerbating a Native American war with the colonists. Wow, maybe we could have had peace with the Native Americans. I don't know. Probably not, as we're going to talk about manifest destiny and social Darwinism. Probably not. But the natural inclination of the colonists 
to be mass-murdering fuckheads, excuse me. The Crown watered that by paying the Native Americans to harass and kill colonists. So they wanted to end that. The colonists wanted a, liber a Republican and a libertarian form of governance, which is a rebellion against monarchy. Monarchy. Ooh, monarchy. You know, probably one of the best forms of governance would be a benign king that loved his people and believed in well-being. Why we don't have kings? Well, we do. But why we try to get away from this kingship thing is there's that son, Rudrick, who's an idiot or a mass murderer. That's why we can't do the king, the king thing. That's why we, the people, have to govern. We can't depend on these rulers. You heard in the, in the bit, the British were putting British soldiers right in the homes of colonists. You know, if I had three daughters and I had six soldiers in there, there was a lot of raping that goes on there. We didn't like that. That's a good reason to rebel. The colonists were prohibited from trading with non-British countries, non-colonial countries, non-empire countries. This is horrifying. It was control. They, were, they wanted their economic freedom, their, their ability to create as they saw fit. They wanted representative rights. They, and, you know, they, the, the crown had abolished local legislatures. They wanted local self-governance, governance at the local level, which is the best kind of governance, which is the kind of governance I'm encouraging you to get into. America needs to be governed at the local level at the local level, which, of course, everybody says, oh, it's the grassroots. What a disparaging label, grassroots, you dirty little grassroots people. No, 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 no. We are the American people. We are the government. We govern at the local level. So it's never been sexy to be involved in local politics, but we're going to make it sexy because that's where the action is, at the local level. So you can get involved in your local politics today and be involved in the most important aspect of self-governance, local backyard politics. You know, of course, the uh, British were uh, practicing uh, piracy, which means they would impress people into service. You know, you'd be sitting at the bar and a bunch of British military people come in, whack you in the head, and you'd wake up on a boat. <laughs> you'd probably never come home alive. I mean, they just were, it's called kidnapping or piracy. Taxes were very high, confiscatory taxes. And the, the, boogie, the boogeyman in the room was Britain had already given up uh, slavery and they were using the United States as slavery 2.0. And there was a lot of people here in this country, unfortunately, that were here at the behest of the crown that wanted to have kind of plausible deniability, like a proxy war. They wanted to continue slavery here in this country, which is a long conversation we're going to keep having. Having, But my point is that slavery was a symptom, a symptom of this very unhealthy business model that the Crown implemented throughout the world. And we're, we're still living, we're still living in its prop. It's still activated as 2.0. So in the interconnectedness of all things, the, the revolution in China in 49 and the independence that we sought here in 1776 was a revolution against the exact same business model. And the tea that went in that harbor was exploit was an exploitative robbery or piracy of the output of China by the crowd. They take it from the Chinese and they sold it here in the United States. 
hey, you know what? There's no better profit than when you steal someone's shit and sell it because there's no cost. You know, a good business model is I work really hard and I have a cost. I have basis. And then when I sell something, my profit is the difference between what I sell it for and the basis. But if you steal the goods, wow, that's a great business model for the guy that's running it. Everybody else gets screwed because their basis is, oh, I stole it and I sold it. That's a really unhealthy business model. And that's what we're trying to grow out of in this experiment of human consciousness that we're going through. Horrifying. So the Crown established uh, the British East India Company in 1600. The Queen did it. And they established this to, you know, trade in China, exploit China. And uh, what can I say? This, This thing went on for hundreds of years, this exploitative business model. And let me just show you how exploitative it was. Play this next bit on the Crown's drug trade. This will be an eye-opener. We arrest drug dealers. We criminalize people, mainly black and brown people, for possessing small amounts of drugs like weed. We do this because drugs are bad. Unless, of course, it's your government that's dealing the drugs. Like that time the British Empire got China hooked on opium. Empires of Dirt, a show about Europeans getting rich at the expense of everyone else. Opium had been grown in China since the 11th century, but it was only until the 17th century that usage really took off when people realized you could smoke it instead of just chewing it. By the 1800s, there were foggy back alley opium dens in the streets of Canton, now known as Guangzhou, Shanghai, and even in London's Limehouse on Pennyfield Street. In the early 19th century, Chinese exports like silk, ceramic, and tea were hugely popular in Britain. Opium was one of the few things that British Empire could trade back. It's estimated that as many as 15 million people were addicted to opium by 1890, making it one of the worst cases of national drug addiction ever seen. They would ship opium grown in colonial India to Canton, where Chinese traders would take it into China. As opium grew in popularity, British trade increased. In 1800, 300 metric tons of opium were shipped into China. Four decades later, this had increased to 3,500 metric tons of opium. Opium was a highly addictive drug with similar effects to modern-day heroin. Long-term users could experience liver, kidney, and heart problems and could die of withdrawal. Opium use had been banned by the Chinese Emperor Yongzheng in 1729 after he saw the effects of addiction on his citizens, and again in 1796 by the Emperor Jiating after everyone ignored the first ban. But Britain continued smuggling opium into China. It was simply too profitable not to. The opium monopoly out of India was worth 981,000 pounds in 1831. That's the equivalent of about 100 million pounds today. By the 1830s, people from every level of Chinese society were hooked on opium. After Emperor Daoguang received reports of mass addiction all over the country, he'd had enough. Soldiers burned all the opium they found. British traders lost 20,000 chests of opium, equivalent to about two million pounds. This led to the first opium war in 1839. 
The British were so angry that their drugs had been stolen that they sent troops to the region to demand economic reparations for the financial losses they'd incurred while illegally trafficking narcotics into a foreign country. They were also angry that China refused to open up more ports to British trade and had disrespected their traders. Back in the UK, the press depicted the Chinese as barbarians who had insulted the honour of Brits abroad. In an act of war, Britain occupied Hong Kong, then a sparsely inhabited island off the southeast coast of China. In 1841, China ceded the island to Britain. A year later, the Treaty of Nanking was signed, marking an end to the First Opium War. So Britain got what it wanted. Money for illegally trafficking drugs into China and a shiny new island base to smuggle opium from, Hong Kong. Opium remained illegal after the war, but the Chinese authorities were basically forced to accept the drug trade into China. Opium consumption ripped through Chinese society like never before. Chinese smugglers quickly realized that if they registered their ships in Hong Kong as British ships, they could keep smuggling opium into China. This triggered the second Opium War in 1856, when a Chinese ship flying the Union Jack was seized by the authorities. The Chinese crew was arrested and the British flag was torn down. The British Navy, supported by the French troops, retaliated by seizing Beijing and looting and burning down the Imperial Summer Palace. China was forced to legalize the import of opium. With the opium trade finally legal, imports from British-controlled India nearly tripled to hit 6,500 metric tons in 1880. Fed up with the British running drugs into their country, the Chinese authorities decided that if you couldn't beat them, you might as well join them. By around 1915, moral and political opposition to the drug trade had grown. Britain stopped importing opium to China. It simply wasn't profitable anymore. It's hard to quantify the scale of the misery that Britain caused in China or the mess they left behind. And I know personally because my own great-grandfather was addicted to opium and eventually died of withdrawal in Hong Kong. And it's something my family still talks about all the time. The British Empire were one of the biggest drug pushers in history, but hardly anyone in the UK knows what we did in China. Pablo Escobar, he's got nothing on the British Empire. Thank you, Zane. Well, that's a little overview of uh, piracy, drugs, and slavery. And uh, I loved her uh, personal story or personal history. She had a personal testimony in her own family, the oral tradition, which made her very sensitized to this issue. Uh, but that's a horrifying story, right? I mean, and then at the end when she said, might as well join them, what happened was is that the Chinese people got into the opium business and made it not prop profitable for the British. It's not like they jumped up and said, "Oh, we grew a conscious conscience." They just took them out of the. They just took them out of the business. It's just a, a very, very uh, kind of gangster kind of a deal went on there. But uh, they fought wars, and um, this is the history of Hong Kong. And you can imagine how the Chinese people feel about colonialism and the West with this kind of a history. Let's pop up this next one now and get a little bit more into the crown. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II became the first British monarch to celebrate a platinum jubilee. The celebrations took place over a four-day bank holiday, millions of Brits parted in street parties and people around the world joined in on the celebrations. But is celebrating the British monarch harmless fun, or does it normalise the monarchy's long history of colonialism? And is it a celebration of British imperialism? 
Here are four ways in which the British royal family has benefited from colonialism. They have historically benefited from the enslavement of human beings. In 1562, John Hawkins was the first Englishman to include African people in his cargo. He traded these people for ginger and sugar. On his next voyage in 1564, Queen Elizabeth I funded a vessel for his journey. The British East India Company was formed in 1600 to exploit trade with Southeast Asia. They did that by colonizing land and exploiting people through the transatlantic slave trade. The figure who signed the Royal Charter allowing this all to happen was also Elizabeth I. Between 1690 and 1807, an estimated 6 million Africans were transported from Africa to the Americas on British or Anglo-American ships. The royal family and the British Parliament protected the trade. After Elizabeth I's death, the Royal African Company was established in 1660 by the Duke of York. The company transported more than 187,000 slaves who were often branded DY for the Duke of York. It's difficult to say how much the royals benefited from slavery, but many say it funded the entire British treasury. And it's safe to say that much of the monarch's significance, power and wealth stems from the enslavement of Africans. Lucy Worsley, the chief curator of royal historic palaces, says that all royal palaces from the 17th century have an element of money which is derived from slavery, including Kensington Palace and Hampton Court. The royal family was built on a legacy of stolen land, goods and atrocities. Queen Elizabeth II's largest diamond, the Kohinoor, was stolen from a 10-year-old prince in India along with his land in the 19th century. It was transferred to Queen Mary in 1911 and was handed down to the current queen. Both India and Pakistan have asked for the diamond's return, but it's still very much owned by the crown. In India between the 1700s and mid-20th century, an estimated $45 trillion was stolen by the British under the vestiges of the crown. Famines which occurred as a result of Britain's non-intervention policy led to the death of more than 30 million Indians. In 1947, Lord Mountbatten, a royal and the viceroy of India, decided he wanted to get Britain out of India quickly. The decision to carve up a country led to 15 million people being displaced and between 1 and 2 million people dying. Of course, this is just India. At its peak, Britain had colonized 25% of the world's surface. From the Mau Mau massacre in Kenya to concentration camps in South Africa, Britain, under the vestiges of the crown, has a long and bloody history of colonial atrocities. And the royals have historically been at the centre of them. The prestige of the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth is an organisation of 52 independent member states. What it actually is is a collection of former British colonies and Rwanda and Mozambique. The Commonwealth originated after World War II when much of India and Africa was becoming independent. The Commonwealth claims that it is an association of sovereign nations working towards shared goals of prosperity, democracy and peace. But critics say that the association promotes neocolonialism through free trade agreements, which favour more developed economies. British companies own more than $1 trillion of Africa's key resources. The Queen is the head of the Commonwealth and Charles has been appointed her successor, which allows the British monarchy to remain in a position of international privilege and go on tours of Commonwealth countries. But that's not all. In the Caribbean, 14 nations are trying to claim reparations from Britain for four centuries of slavery, and Britain is using the Commonwealth jurisdiction to block the claim. The Queen is the head of state. Most former colonies became republics, but 15 former colonies remain constitutional monarchies with Elizabeth II as head of state. Even though the position is ceremonial and she has no real power, the title is an ongoing symbol of colonial authority, especially when the British crown plundered and killed indigenous people in some of these countries, from Jamaica to Australia and Canada. And some of these communities are still reeling from the impact of colonialism. In 2021, Barbados removed the Queen as head of state, and Jamaica has announced that it will follow. No apology, no reparations. In 2018, Prince Charles called Britain's role in the slave trade an atrocity. In 2022, Prince William said that slavery stains our history on a tour in Jamaica. 
The British government has apologized for isolated incidents of torture during the Mama uprising in Kenya. But critics say that it's not enough, that the Queen herself and the royal family have not come forward to acknowledge their family's historic role in slavery and colonization. In fact, the Queen's late husband, Prince Philip, was known for his racist gaffes, often made while on tours to the Commonwealth. Many former colonies have talked about wanting reparations, but none have been forthcoming. In fact, the only reparations that Britain has willingly paid haven't been to the formerly enslaved, but rather to slave owners. Britain paid £20 million in 1834, a debt that British taxpayers only finished paying in 2050. Are the celebrations of the royals just a normalisation of a bloody history of slavery and colonisation? Well, well, well. Well, 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 well. Look at these people. Look at their business model. You know, we had this Queen Elizabeth, been alive my entire life, was coronated many decades before I was born. And she's such a nice old lady. Oh, she's so sweet. What a cover story. I want, I mean, when I think about the, the way the British Empire devastated the world, the genocide and the uh, exploitation and the intergenerational post-traumatic stress disorder that they brought forth for us, that we're living in this, as if it ended. No, it didn't end. It didn't end. We're living in the 2.0 version. And in the next podcast, we're going to talk about how this transferred into the United States under the guise of what? Social Darwinism. Oh, Darwin. He was, I think, well, I think we'll look it up. I'm 100% sure he was British. And that was a scam to remove all spiritual insight and allegiance from the people make them believe that we're automatons, allow that Cartesian dualism, and allow every kind of manner of horror and exploitive behavior and killing and domination. 25% of the world's surface, I'm going to look up how many of the people it was. Because remember, it was 25% of the land area, but it was a much higher percentage of the population of the world. These British people were excellent at subjugating peoples and extracting their wealth by turning one against the other, brother against brother, brother against cousin, tribe against tribe. And while we're all fighting and killing each other, they're just walking out with the cash, getting stronger and stronger, richer and richer. We don't even know what we're fighting. They got us so screwed up over here, we're fighting each other. And we aren't the enemies of each other. We're each other's brothers and sisters. This business model is the enemy. This unwell, anti-human, unhealthy way of exploiting the people is the enemy that we are facing together. And at its root, we're going to find Darwinism. Remember we talked so much about Darwin as the alternative to spirituality? that the Darwinist movement, that the progressive movement, that the, the anti-God movement. Well, if there's no God, there's no judgment. Hey, if you're going to enslave people and you're going to kill them, who wants to think they have? I don't want to. These people don't want to have a conscience and they don't want any shame. They just want the material cash so they can live vastly better than everybody else. In fact, we're all inventory to these people. 
And when I say inventory, I mean inventory, as Malcolm X said, like so many chickens and cows. So it's time for us to start to unite around a completely new understanding of our history, get down to the root of it, understand we need to have human well-being, identify who these people are that are pursuing and promoting social Darwinism because they're all over our universities hiding this philosophy in all kinds of really cool-sounding things like environmentalism, inequity. No, 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 no. These people are social Darwinists, and they're here to clip me out, and they're here to clip you out, and take a look at that shit that's going on over in the Ukraine because they're getting ready to go for it, and we're all going to be dead, and our kids are going to be dead, but they're going to have that money, and they're going to have a really good life, just a handful of them, and we're going to be destroyed as, as humanity. So we need to rise up right now. Click that like button. Please go and spread this out. Let's get together a community because if we form a community of people that love one another, that pursue truth and nonviolent protest, we can turn this around, but we got to move quick. we got to do it starting today. So this is David Penn thanking you for joining me again on the Professor Penn Podcast. I look forward to seeing you soon again. Thank you very much.